Stowaway by Armando Sicaris Ramirez, as told to Dennis Foda and John Reddy. Two Cuban teenagers dreaming of freedom race to climb into the wheel well of Iberia Flight 904 as a taxi to take off. This is their incredible story. The jet engines of the Iberia Airlines DC-8 thundered in ear-splitting crescendo as the big plane taxied towards where we were huddled in the tall grass, just off the end of the runway at Havana Jose Marti Airport. For months, my friend Georges Perez Blanco and I had been planning to stow away in a wheel well on this flight, number 904, Iberia's once-weekly, non-stop run from Havana to Madrid. Now, in the late afternoon of June 3, 1969, our moment had come. We realised that we were pretty young to be taking such a big gamble. I was 17, Georges was 16, but we were both determined to escape from Cuba, and our plans had been carefully made. We knew that departing airliners taxied to the end of the 3,500-metre runway, stopped momentarily after turning around, then roared at full throttle down the runway to take off. We wore rubber-soled shoes to aid us in crawling up the wheels and carried ropes to secure ourselves inside the wheel well. We had also stuffed cotton in our ears as protection against the shriek of the four jet engines. Now we lay sweating with fear as the massive craft swung into its about face, the jet blast flattening the grass all around us. Let's run, I shouted to Georges. We dashed onto the runway and sprinted towards the left-hand wheels of the momentarily stationary plane. As Georges began to scramble up the one-metre-high tyres, I saw there was not room for us both in the single well. I'll try the other side, I shouted. Quickly, I climbed onto the right wheels, grabbed a strut, and twisting and wriggling, pulled myself into the semi-dark well. The plane began rolling immediately, and I grabbed some machinery to keep from falling out. The roar of the engines nearly deafened me. As we became airborne, the huge double wheels, scorching hot from takeoff, began folding into the compartment. I tried to flatten myself against the overhead as they came closer and closer. Then, in desperation, I pushed at them with my feet, but they pressed powerfully upwards, squeezing me terrifyingly against the roof of the well. Just when I felt that I would be crushed, the wheels locked in place and the bay doors beneath them closed, plunging me into darkness. So there I was, my 1.62-metre, 65-kilogram frame, literally wedged in amid a spaghetti-like maze of conduits and machinery. I could not move enough to tie myself to anything, so I stuck my rope behind a pipe. Then, before I had time to catch my breath, the bay door suddenly dropped open again, and the wheels stretched out into their landing position. I held on for dear life, swinging over the abyss, wondering if I had been spotted, if even now the plane was turning back to hand me over to Castro's police. By the time the wheels began retracting again, I had seen a bit of extra space among all the machinery where I could safely squeeze. Now I knew there was room for me, even though I could scarcely breathe. After a few minutes, I touched one of the tyres and found that it had cooled off. I swallowed some aspirin tablets against the head-splitting noise and began to wish that I had worn something warmer than my light sports shirt and green fatigues. Up in the cockpit of Flight 904, Captain Valentin Vara del Rey, 44, had settled into the routine of the overnight flight, which would last eight hours and twenty minutes. Takeoff had been normal, 
with the aircraft and its 147 passengers, plus a crew of 10, lifting off at 270 kilometres per hour. But right after liftoff, something unusual had happened. One of three red lights on the instrument panel had remained alight, indicating improper retraction of the landing gear. Are you having difficulty? The control tower asked. Yes, replied Vara Del Rey. There is an indication that the right wheel hasn't closed properly. I'll repeat the procedure. The captain lowered the landing gear, then raised it again. This time the red light blinked out. Dismissing the incident as a minor malfunction, the captain turned his attention to climbing to assigned cruising altitude. On levelling out, he observed that the temperature outside was minus 40 degrees Celsius. Inside Flight 904, the stewardesses began serving dinner to the passengers. Shivering uncontrollably from the bitter cold, I wondered if Georges had made it into the other wheel well and began thinking about what had brought me to this desperate situation. I thought about my parents and my girl, Maria Esther, and wondered what they would think when they learned what I had done. My father is a plumber, and I have four brothers and a sister. We are poor, like most Cubans. Our house in Havana has just one large room. Eleven people live in it, or did. Food was scarce and strictly rationed. About the only fun I had was playing baseball and walking with Maria Esther along the seawall. When I turned 16, the government shipped me off to vocational school in Betancourt, a sugarcane village in Matanzas province. There I was supposed to learn welding, but classes were often interrupted to send us off to plant cane. Young as I was, I was tired of living in a state that controlled everyone's life. I dreamed of freedom. I wanted to become an artist and live in the United States where I had an uncle. I knew that thousands of Cubans had got to America and done well there. As the time approached when I would be drafted, I thought more and more of trying to get away. But how? I knew that two plane loads of people were allowed to leave Havana for Miami each day, but there is a waiting list of 800,000 for these flights. Also, if you sign up to leave, the government looks on you as a gusano, a worm, and life becomes even less bearable. My hopes seemed futile. Then I met George at a Havana baseball game. After the game, we got to talking. I found out that George, like myself, was disillusioned with Cuba. The system takes away your freedom, forever, he complained. George told me about the weekly flight to Madrid. Twice we went to the airport to reconnoitre. Once a DC-8 took off and flew directly over us. The wheels were still down and we could see into the well compartments. There's enough room in there for me, I remember saying. These were my thoughts as I lay in the freezing darkness, more than eight kilometres above the Atlantic Ocean. By now we had been in the air about an hour, and I was getting lightheaded from the lack of oxygen. Was it really only a few hours earlier that I had bicycled through the rain with Georges and hidden in the grass? Was Georges safe? My parents? Maria Esther? I drifted into unconsciousness. The sun rose over the Atlantic like a great golden globe, its rays glinting off the silver and red fuselage of Iberia's DC-8 as it crossed the European coast high over Portugal. With the end of the 8,952-kilometre flight in sight, Captain Vara del Rey began his descent towards Madrid's Barajas airport. Arrival would be at 8am local time, the captain told his passengers, over the intercom, and the weather in Madrid was sunny and pleasant. Shortly after passing over Toledo, 
Farah Del Rey let down his landing gear. As always, the manoeuvre was accompanied by a buffeting as the wheels hit the slipstream and a 320 km per hour turbulence swirled through the wheel wells. Now the plane went into its final approach. Now a spurt of flame and smoke from the tyres as the DC-8 touched down at about 225 km per hour. It was a perfect landing, no bumps. After a brief post-flight check, Vara Del Rey walked down the ramp steps and stood by the nose of the plane waiting for a car to pick him up, along with his crew. Nearby there was a sudden soft plop as the frozen body of Armando Sicaris Ramirez fell to the concrete apron beneath the plane. Jose Rocha Lorenzana, a security guard, was the first to reach the crumpled figure. When I touched his clothes, they were frozen and stiff as wood, Rocha said. All he did was make a strange sound, a kind of moan. I couldn't believe it at first, Vara Del Rey said when told of Armando, but then I went over to see him. He had ice over his nose and mouth, and his colour. As he watched the unconscious boy being bundled into a truck, the captain kept exclaiming to himself, Impossible! Impossible! The first thing I remember after losing consciousness was hitting the ground at the Madrid airport. Then I blacked out again and woke up later at the Gran Hospital de la Beneficencia in downtown Madrid, more dead than alive. When they took my temperature, it was so low that it did not even register on the thermometer. Am I in Spain? was my first question. And then, where's George? George is believed to have been knocked down by the jet blast while trying to climb into the other wheel well and to be in prison in Cuba. Doctors said later that my condition was comparable to that of a patient undergoing deep freeze surgery, a delicate process performed only under carefully controlled conditions. Dr. Jose Maria Pajares, who cared for me, called my survival a medical miracle, and in truth, I feel lucky to be alive. A few days after my escape, I was up and around the hospital, playing cards with my police guard and reading stacks of letters from all over the world. I especially liked one from a girl in California. You are a hero, she wrote, but not very wise. My uncle, Ilo Fernandez, who lives in New Jersey, telephoned and invited me to come to the United States to live with him. The International Rescue Committee arranged my passage and has continued to help me. I am fine now. I live with my uncle and go to school to learn English. I still hope to study to be an artist. I want to be a good citizen and contribute something to this country, for I love it here. You can smell freedom in the air. I often think of my friend Georges. We both knew the risk we were taking and that we might be killed in our attempt to escape Cuba, but it seemed worth the chance. Even knowing the risks, I would try to escape again if I had to. The blindingly obvious danger of stowing away in the wheel well of a plane ought to make Armando Sicaris Ramirez's journey a one-off incident. Yet according to the US Federal Aviation Administration, there are 109 recorded incidents of people stowing away in the wheel well of planes around the world from 1947 to 2014. Of these, 84 have died of hypothermia, falling from the aircraft or from being crushed when the wheels retracted. Two of the biggest threats to stowaways are extreme cold that leads to hypothermia and reduced oxygen pressure, leading to hypoxia and loss of consciousness. If a stowaway is lucky enough to be alive when the plane touches down, they may suffer frostbite, hearing loss, 
and possibly brain damage. So with a slim chance of survival, why would anyone attempt such a treacherous journey? A few stowaways, who are predominantly young men, have taken the risk out of a misguided sense of adventure or have not fully contemplated the dangers. In April 2004, 15-year-old Yahya Abdi survived a ride in the wheel well of a flight from San Jose Airport to Hawaii, desperate to start the journey that would reunite him with his family in Africa. However, like Armando, the majority are those in search of political asylum or a new life in a Western country. Today, Armando is a father of four and lives in Miami, Florida. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.